Hello. Welcome to a very special New York Comic Con edition of 52 Pickup. I'm Alex Jaffe for Aftermath, and I'm joined here today by one of the five names on the cover of my 52 omnibus I have with me, uh, Mr. Jeff Johns. Hey, Alex. How are you? I'm terrific. Day four of the convention for me. Have you been hitting the floor this whole this entire weekend? Yeah, it's actually day seven for me because we all got in from Ghost Machine here Monday and had a, a summit Tuesday, Wednesday, so we've been here all week. Uh, before we get into 52, tell me a little bit more about Ghost Machine. Uh, Ghost Machine is uh, it's like a creative collective of a bunch of us creators that have united together to write and draw and produce awesome comic books, and we co-own the universes that we're creating together in every aspect of the business. Um, we're partnered up with Image Comics. Uh, that's really interesting because everything I've read about uh, 52 seems like another groundbreaking moment in comic book collaboration, sort of treating the uh, construction of a story as a writer's room, which isn't really anything that had been done before in comics. Yeah, not to the extent of, of 52. You know, we very much, I, I love collaboration. In comic books, the collaborations I've always usually had is between writer and artist, but then ultimately in television, whether I'm running Stargirl, working on The Flash, or, or any of the shows, it's always a collaboration between the writers, then ultimately the writer and the director, the actors, the crew. Collaboration is one of the great parts of art and creating art is you do it with people you love and respect and have talent and you make everything better. And so 52 was really the first of its kind when we had these great writers that set aside everyone's ego and we just got together to tell a great story together with Grant and Mark and Greg and Keith. It was awesome. Um, and our editor, Steve Wacker, who, who eventually took over the book, it was things like 52 that were groundbreaking that really did inspire things like Ghost Machine. You know, we've got A-list creators on Ghost Machine. It's Brad Meltzer and Peter Tomasi and Francis Manipal and Gary Frank and Brian Hitch and, and, and so many others um, just that we've announced so far. But that kind of collaboration and that unity and that camaraderie um, only comes from, you know, working together for, for a better purpose, for more fun. And, and that's what 52 really was. It, it was we, we were all in it together. Absolutely. I guess my first question is, how the hell did you guys put out a weekly comic for an entire year without missing a week? Oh, my God. That would be, I mean, really the whole team. The whole team was determined to do it. Everyone said that we were going to miss a week somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, Keith Giffen was the, not unsung hero, because I think he, he, he hopefully gets the credit he deserves for that book. But by laying out the whole book, he gave it a unified look, even though we had different artists doing the art. Um, and... Although we all co-plotted the story together, uh, many of the writers of, of us would take kind of lead on certain characters and, and storylines and, and write those pages. So there'd be weeks where it'd be very heavy for Grant Morrison and light for me or, or, or vice versa. And that's how we were managed to, to balance the schedule. Some days, like I'm like, oh, I need, I need four pages for this Black Adam scene. And after we plot it, I'd have two. And yeah. I'd have to figure out how to tell that four page scene in two pages or I'd say like, hey, this is the big action scene. I, I really need some some pages for Black Adam and Isis and, and Sobek. And then we would have a, a, a larger issue there. Um, so it, it, by balancing the schedule, it took everybody, uh, everyone on board to be aware, hyper aware of it and dedicated to the book. You mentioned Black Adam, uh, which is one of the biggest through lines of 52. Very clearly your story. Black Adam was your baby going back to JSA with uh, Black Rain and everything you were doing on Shazam. Black Adam's had a very, very interesting arc over the past 20 years, going from a guy who was in one issue of Captain Marvel Family to uh, The Rock playing him in a movie. How did that trajectory happen? I don't really know. It was like when he... 
I mean, it was the first year of me writing comics. Um, and when he, he appeared in a JSA issue that I co-wrote, it was JSA with David Goyer, it was JSA 6. Um, I think it was 6. It was one of the very first, yeah, it was 6. It was one of the very first issues we, we did when I came on the book. And then he came back and he was an interesting character to write. Uh, ultimately, he just started developing into a character. And then when, when I was taking over JSA myself and the Black Rain story came, it was an analog for a lot of things that were going through in the world and, and Black Adam with Kandak, I thought his perspective as a, you know, as a, a, a man from the past and a hero from the from the old world with kind of Old Testament opinions and justice and, and making him just a very complicated character because the JSA was so pure. The JSA is so, you know, right and wrong. You, you know they're gonna do the right thing. It was interesting to contra- contrast that with Black Adam and have Black Adam influence certain characters like Adam Smasher and their views of what justice is and how do you make the world a better place. and. You know, is it black and white or is it completely gray? And, and, and how gray is it? And he just developed into a, a, a compelling character when we were working on Black Rain and Hawkman was back and, and the crossover with Hawkman. Rags Morales did some beautiful artwork in there. I have a few pages actually that he did. Uh, but then ultimately, when we did 52, he kind of was a nat- naturally had a storyline in there. And that storyline, though, wasn't just, you know, quote unquote, my storyline. It was all of our storylines because we talked about Black Adam as a character. and. Ultimately, it was going to be a you know a, a hero on the rise and then a fall from fall from grace or a spiral down into 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 villainy or or you know after tragic loss, which is something I like exploring how loss affects certain people. But um, the Black Adam story just kind of evolved from there, and then because I think he was such a mainstream in, in JSA and became really popular in '52, and then they've done Black Adam series and Black Adam movie, and they put him he they put him as a member of the Justice League. I mean, he's they they since have since 52 have kind of, you know, really used that character quite a bit. Uh, One thing we talk about sometimes on the show is that 52 oftentimes very feels like it's in conversation with uh, Bush-era politics. It's very much a product of its time and kind of the feelings of uh, international tension that were happening in the mid-aughts. Was that something that was on your mind while you were writing it with the gang? I'd say, like, everything in the best comic books, the world around us, and what's going on in that world affects us and affects our stories. And, and we kind of process things from the personal to the global through story and character. That's really what comics, the best kind of thing comics do and stories do. I, I've done that my whole career from Green Lantern to Teen Titans to 52. We're always doing it. I, I don't think anyone consciously in 52 said, hey, let's let's shine a light on you know politics or the world around us. It just influences your story and what you want to explore as a human being through art. And, and, and character, and, and that's where it came from. There were no real conscious, like, let's do this to reflect this, but clearly it's affected by the world we lived in then and, and before then. One of the things that's really interesting to me about 52 is that it was originally pitched as this sort of solution to an ongoing mystery that was one year later, that after Infinite Crisis, all of these titles had jumped forward a year, And in 52, we would allegedly find out how all those connections happened. And it ended up doing something completely different. And I love it for that. It just ended up going in a direction that's kind of allowed it to stand the test of time. Uh, But I would like to know how the book kind of evolved between all of you from one intentionality to the other. Well, originally the book was, it was going to fill in, quote unquote, fill in, you know, that, that missing year. Um, And so you would see stories that were referred to in the one year later. And and to some extent that did on some of the characters, but there were also 
there was also lim- limiting because you know it's a year long, and so after the first few months of one year later and four or five, six months into it, they were dropping the one year later mm-hmm. and moving on to next new storylines and getting back to different status quos. And so there were certain mysteries to solve or answers to questions that were posed. But ultimately, as we were working on 52, it really did become its own beast, its own story. And so although some of the original intention was to have stories fill in those quote unquote gaps, um, it didn't end up being about that. It was more character driven. So we had our lead characters like The Question and Booster Gold and Black Adam and Elongated Man and, and Steel. And, and those characters took over, had storylines and, and it was they were not going to be seen one year later. So we would not know what their endings were, which was really important for us. So they gave us the through line. They gave us the real main through line and the main purpose. And as we were working on the title, I don't know, remember when it was. It was, it was there was a summit with all of us and and our editor, Steve, um, was an amazing editor. And made, like, really championed this book, protected this book, made this book work. It would never work. I, wrote, I read he wrote all the Blackboard messages. I, he probably <laughs> did, yeah. I don't remember that. But, yeah, he was. He just did a great... I mean, he just crushed on this book. He's such a great guy, too. But um, all of us were in a meeting, and, and Dan DiDio came in and really challenged us. Like, we were, all, we were... Everything was working great. We were getting along fine. And, and I remember him saying this. He's like, well, they're getting along too well. <laughs> and so he came in and he really riled us up in, in a way that ruffled all of our feathers. Like, you know, push yourselves, make this better. And he really just... You know, I think all of us were taken aback by it a bit and, and were, quite honestly, emotional about it and kind of like, hey, we're doing a good job. We're having fun and, yeah. and the book's working. But I have to give Dan credit. It was almost like a coach and a sports team. You know, he wanted to rile us up. He wanted to kind of re-motivate us because we were so, not complacent, but very happy. And um, he gave us kind of a force to kind of push ourselves against. He's done this to me many times in my career as, as an editor. And he was like a coach that pushed his players harder. And that's when we came up with a lot more of the deeper mysteries of the reveals. You know, mo- most people can't can't remember it, but there was no multiverse before mm-hmm. 52. In fact, Infinite Crisis was the first time in like 20 years that it was even mentioned. And 52 ultimately came about bringing about the return of the multiverse. Back when multi the, mul- the word multiverse was not used. Right. Like right now, it's in every every other movie and TV show that's that's out there. But it was a it was a big deal for us, and to talk about that reveal and why we wanted to do it, and how it would work, and what it would mean, and what it represented for DC, it, it was exciting to do. But Dan, you know, Dan really was the one that helped push us through. He did the same thing with me on Blackest Night. Originally, Blackest Night was going to be a crossover like Sinestro Corps between Green Lantern and Green Lantern Corps, and I told him as much. I said, "Look, I want to protect this thing. I, it's a story I really want to tell. I don't want Blackest Night to be a gigantic event." And he said, "It's it's a such a big story. You want it to, you want it to affect the DC universe. You've got it built for that." And ultimately, after probably months of of talking about it and him pushing me, I said, "Okay, let's let's have Blackest Night be its own series. We'll we'll expand it across the DC universe more than we we did Sinestro Corps." Mm-hmm. I flew to New York and moved to New York for three four months to write it. And because I said, if we do it, I got to be in the office every day. I have to talk to the editors. I have to write the scripts. I have to talk to the other writers. I have to make sure that this stuff is is a, of a certain quality and that everyone knows the intent of the stories uh, more than the specifics, but the intent. And so I spent three months in D.C. with Dan and, and the editors and and Pete Pete Tomasi, who was writing Greenlight Core, and we and we, we worked away on it. But again, that's an example of think, something that I'm very glad Dan pushed me on because. Sometimes you need that push, and he did that for us on 52. He he made us 
go to places that we weren't necessarily going to go to and, and push ourselves to make the story even deeper and more meaningful, I think not just in terms of a plot, like a comic book plot where, oh, the multiverse is back, but in terms of what it meant to the character, the universe, and the thematics that we were playing with. Um, You mentioned the multiverse. A lot of your work over the past more than 15 years has been about that, to the point that it's become a cornerstone of the cultural conversation around comics and superheroes. Like you said, in a way, it absolutely was not in the environment in which you started talking about it. How have your own thoughts about like multiverse storytelling evolved since Infinite Crisis? Well, I mean, um, it's a good question. You know, a lot of my work, like Geiger and Junkyard Joe and... and the other books at Ghost Machine are, are character-based, emotional-based, conceptual characters that are based on some kind of emotion we're exploring. You know, Redcoat's really between Brian Hitch and I exploring the idea of, like, if you live forever, would you change and evolve as a person or would you still make the same mistakes? Mm. How hard is it to change as a human being? And it's like, well, if you only have, you know, 80, 90, 100 years to live, maybe it's hard, but what if you have 300, what if you had 400 years to live? Would you evolve as a human or would you not? Would you regress? How would you would you become cynical as as a lot of older people do, or would you you know would you break through that and become more optimistic watching humanity, or would it be you know what would it be like um, for you as a person? And so those are the kind of stories I'm most interested in. You know, I worked on Flashpoint, which obviously was like I, it's more of a time travel story than it is a multiverse yeah. story. You know, uh, and that story wasn't about the multiverse or about changing time. That was about exploring grief. And how do you accept grief and move on? How do you process grief? How does tragedy and loss affect you? Which is what Thomas Wayne Batman represented. The the absolute horror and heart heartbroken, you know, spirit that someone has when they lose lose a child, which I saw my parents have to face when my sister died. And that's where Thomas Wayne came from. And, and Barry Allen was exploring the loss of his mother and how, and how could he process it and move forward, which is what that story is about. That story is yeah. not about time travel or the multiverse. That story is about grief. Absolutely. So when we talk about stories like my stories have been about, or, or stories I've done that have been about the multiverse, you know, Aquaman was about someone that was caught between two cultures and trying to find his place in the world. Green Lantern was all about self-awareness of emotion and processing emotion, accepting the emotions we have. Every storyline I've kind of worked on with DC, you know, Doomsday Clock was all about the inaction versus action. And the, you know, if, if in some, some ways it was about duality and how there's more to duality. Yeah. Right? Uh, so although there's multiverse aspects of certain certain parts of the story, like Doomsday Clock, it's not about the story. It's just a, it's just a part of the arsenal of, of DC Universe in particular to use in in um, the telling of these stories, where I like to explore emotions and thematics and character. I'm talking to you days after we just lost Keith Giffen. Oh yeah. And like you said, like none of this would have been possible without Keith doing the breakdowns every week. I'd like to hear a little bit about what it was like to work with him. Keith was a guy that I, I mean I grew up reading his books, looking up to him. And when you were in a room with Keith, you, you, you were very gr- grateful to be in that room mm-hmm. because he, he was so giving to others. As a creator, he didn't open up to a lot of people, but he certainly opened up to us in the room and we became very close friends. All of us did. 52 was a really important bonding experience for all of us that worked on it because we worked on it day in, day out for a year. We talked every week. We had phone calls every week. We would have had Zooms in this day. Yeah. Back then, no one knew, really knew what Zoom was. Um, and Keith was always there, always had a voice, always had an idea, always had a suggestion, always was working. And, and he just became a really good friend. Everyone respected his work so much. 
you know, was, was so affected by him. But the fact that we got to know him as a human being, we were really lucky because we felt like you could see he didn't do that a lot. Right. And um, it, we were really lucky to have him there. And that was because of Dan. Dan and he had a relationship. And, mm-hmm. um, they and were friends for, till the end. Yeah, and Keith came in and... and Dan asked him to do this because he knew it needed consistency and and Keith was there and like you'd learn from Keith every day like you learn how he he'd done so many other reinventions in books and as an artist and a writer and had so much humor in his and heart in his work it was really special and like his impact on comics and the people he worked with and the people that you know read his stories it's it's going to be forever. What I'd like to know, what were Grant and Greg and Mark individually like as collaborators? Was there like a different energy you had with each of them? No, I mean, it was still because we were usually together. God, the energy, it was more like awe. You know, Mark and Grant, I had really grown up reading their books like Flash and Justice League and Animal Man and Doom Patrol and, you know, Everything Kingdom Come. Like I, Mark and Grant were my favorite writers mm-hmm. and my absolute favorite writers should be in a room with them and work on a project with them and become friends with them uh, and learn from them. It felt like I was learning every every day. Greg and I were more contemporaries and Greg is so smart, wicked smart, that I was all, I loved his detective comics from before I ever knew him. Um, he's one of the greatest writers in modern comics and he, uh, he always brought a, a sensibility that was grounded and thoughtful and caring and and engaging and that was again part of part of this magic of 52 why it worked i think is because everybody respected everybody and we all were slightly different writers even though we were we had a lot of overlap in our styles we we're all a little bit different too i also heard grant was a little hard to understand over the phone i don't remember that so much all right my personal favorite jeff johns at dc work is the 12 issue booster gold run that you did right after 52 that picks up after the series and where we are in his narrative arc. This podcast is literally named after that arc. Um, so I want to talk about like how you took Booster Gold from this kind of child of the 80s, Dan Jurgens capitalist hero to this superhero whose secret identity is a less competent superhero. Well, much like me being inspired, like when you work in a DC universe, it's a shared universe. Me being inspired by Mark and Grant and John Ostrand and Marv Wolfman and Len Wein, like all, all the great Keith, all the great writers. I was also very influenced by Dan Jurgens. I loved his Superman run. His return his return as Superman was fantastic. And I loved Booster Gold. I loved what Keith and uh, Mark did with him and, and Kevin in Justice League International. Uh, obviously, that's a huge impact on the character. But I also loved Dan's work on Booster Gold. And Booster Gold was a character that we brought in in the uh, Countdown to Infinite Crisis one shot after Ted Kord had died. And Ted Kord was always the lead of that duo. He was mm-hmm. always a more popular character. But Booster Gold, we knew, you know, Jaime Reyes was going to be introduced in Infinite Crisis, so we were, we were setting the stage for that. And Booster Gold being the one to find the new Blue Beetle and bring the Scarab back online, and and Booster Gold was a favorite, and, and he was a great character. And when he he became, you know, our focal point of 52, really, and because he was from the future and he had all these ideas uh, uh, about what was to come, but. Because he was a centerline, you know, after this, there were certain books that were going to spin out. Like we talked about The Question and Steel and, you know, one of the books was Booster Gold. And I loved the character. And I have to say, when I said I want to do Booster Gold, uh, spinning out of 52, 
everybody said don't do that <laughs> everybody said don't like go do batman go do go do a run on justice league like they they thought i was wasting my time but they were thinking more like sales and popularity than they were thinking like stories and what stories do you have to tell because i thought a great story for booster gold the great revolution i came up with the tagline the greatest hero you've never heard of mm-hmm. and that was the whole i i love like movies like a bug's life or galaxy quest right yeah. where, where you have people that are they, they seem to be heroes and they have to learn to be heroes and the greatest life that booster gold would have would have to live ultimately is he actually finally learns to become a true hero but he can't tell anyone about it he can't take any of the credit and it hurts him every single second but it's so great to have that be the secret identity that he has to go down in history as a complete buffoon so no time traveler goes back in time and kills him in his crib that was the initial concept that was the goal and what a fun book to write and so the booster gold book came out of 52 and i wanted to do it simply because i loved the story i loved the idea i loved the evolution and i'd really grown quite fond of booster gold from writing him for so long because you know you end up writing him for a couple of years through you know countdown and then infinite crisis and then and he became a pretty big character and then 52 i'd grown quite fond of the character and i remember they said do you want to do black adam book do you want? and i said no i want to do booster gold because i i also love having fun with characters and you know again i think you probably know enough from my work is uh at least with dc stuff is i love the underdogs i love mm-hmm. the characters that people don't want to write that they've kick in a corner it's the same thing when i did aquaman they said don't write aquaman do batman you know i did teen titans everyone said it's gonna be canceled in a month (laughs) jsa it's like the same hawkman it's i've kind of heard it all my career uh but but to me it's that's part of the fun is that you get to work on a character that um that has a lot of room to grow and breathe and 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 evolve into something brand new and hasn't yet had their you know i guess the definitive evolution you know, your character's introduced like Daredevil, and then it's not until Frank Miller gets a hold of the character that they become something different. Um, and some of these characters haven't yet reached those peaks. I always looked at Aquaman, and I thought his peak was uh, Peter David's run on Aquaman, which I, I thought was brilliant. Um, but it had been, been quite some time since that run had happened, and the character deserved a spotlight. But Booster Gold's the same thing, and I, I'm glad that character stuck around, and people seem to really love that character. It, it, but it all stems from, you know, not my, not my work on the character, but really that Justice League International initial run that Keith and the others did where they just gave him personality and they, they put him in the spotlight so you know Booster Gold had come out and Dan had introduced the, an amazing concept that was way before its time and then Keith Keith and the team evolved that and, and put it in contrast with the rest of the DC Universe that's where he really popped out and the fact that I got to work with Dan Jurgens on a Booster Gold book is that's a dream come true <laughs> you know you never as a kid you grow you read these books and, and you know and, and see these amazing creators and the fact that I mean, I, the fact that I'm even talking about any of these guys, let, let alone who I work with on 52, that I got to collaborate with in all these different ways, is it's a dream come true. I've got one more question before we bring it back to Ghost Machine, something I always promised I would ask you if we ever met. Uh, I am known amongst people as a question guy, got my question shirt on, and the one question I get that I am not able to answer is what was going on with the Trinity of Sin? The Trinity of Sin. Yeah. You introduced a new version of the question in the New 52, where uh, there was Pandora and there was Phantom Stranger, and then there was this question who we knew nothing about, who was like being punished by the Council of Shazam for reasons we never learned, with an identity we never learned. And I want to know if there was, if what the story was there. 
God, you know what? It's been so long since that was that. I mean, it's been like seven years, I guess, since mm-hmm. we did that. I remember that they were going to play with it in Justice League Dark and Phantom Stranger, and they had a Pandora book. Yeah. But I don't, I, I don't, I don't quite remember where that was going to end up or where that did end up. So I guess the answer is ask J.M. Dematis. Uh, no, I, I honestly, if you like, I will literally go home and look at my notes, but I really don't. I don't recall where it was going. Please do. If you can get in touch with me and tell me anything, this is like the greatest unsolved mystery in the question community. Okay, I'll, I will. I will check. Well, you know what? The question needs a question in this universe anyway. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, Ghost Machine. There's a lot of great collaborations coming out of there. The next. Uh, big comic writers writers rooms are evolving right there with some all-star talent artists. Please tell us what the next big breakout titles are that we should look out for. Well, we're really, I mean, we, we're we launching right away. We have a prologue book that's uh, two-issue secret origin of, of Geiger, this character Geiger. That's part of our universe of, of mythic heroes. Uh, that comes out November, December, but our, our big launch is January 24th. Ghost Machine number one comes out, and that's a 64-page one-shot by all of us that introduce all the characters like Geiger and Redcoat and Rook, uh, the Rocket Fellers, and a few others we haven't yet announced that, with some creators we haven't yet announced, that will then uh, start shipping in April, next April. All right, thank you very much for your time, Jeff Johns. Thanks, <laughs> Pleasure to meet you. Fifty Two Pickup is an aftermath production created by Gita Jackson and Alex Jaffe, and edited by Esper Quinn, with original music by John Ahrens. To follow along with us, find Fifty Two at your local library, bookstore, comic store, or digitally on the DC Universe Infinite subscription service, or for free with a library card on Hoopla. The views and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the show's personalities and do not reflect those of DC Entertainment or Warner Brothers. Please rate and review our show wherever you can and send your questions and comments to 52mailbag at gmail.com. Never stop reading comics.